It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. The Joe Lynch Story, a portrait of the Irish entertainer, actor and singer drawn from the life. <laughs> you've been living with Lynch, with Joe Lynch where Pamela Duncan and Charlie Byrne, the musical arrangements were by Jack Gregory and Richie Burbridge, the script by Dermot Doolan and Michael McGarry, and the show produced by Ronnie Walsh. Conversation or anything, so you don't address them. He'd always pull out our tin whistle and he'd, you know, he'd have a no go at it. As a matter of fact, he played, uh, he played soccer when he, when he was in, in one of the stack productions. Stack, I said, didn't mind, didn't like the idea in case he got a leg broken or something. It was in between Sunday. I think he scored one of the fastest goals he never scored that Sunday outside in Turner's Cross. He played for a team called Norton. I don't think he ever played that, so... The story of Joe Lynch begins in Cork City in 1925. His mother was a true native of Cork. His father, an engine driver on the railway, was from Kerry. Let's have a look and see what sort of a world the new infant Lynch was joining on the 16th of July, 1925. It seems to have been a quiet Thursday, not remarkable for news, at least judging by the Cork Examiner for that day. In the letters to the editor, we find an indignant complaint from someone signing himself Market Gardner. The basis of his indignation is the enormous profits made by retailers of vegetables at the expense of the consuming public. As he says, they are selling heads of cabbage for as much as twopence halfpenny when he's selling them to the shopkeepers at a halfpenny each. The advertisements tell us that in 1925 in Cork, you could buy a bedroom suite of furniture in Roach's stores in Patrick Street for £12.17 and sixpence. D.T. O'Sullivan's in Cook Street were offering you the famous Enfield motorcycle for £35. And if you couldn't afford that class of transport, you could settle for a pair of stout boots. They would cost you only ten and sixpence in Crowley's of McCroom annual sale. I sported and played Neath each green leafy shade On the banks of my own lovely lea Where I sported and played Neath each green leafy shade On the banks of my own lovely lea When Joe Lynch was growing up in Cork, 
Going to school firstly in Presentation Convent and then at North Monastery, radio broadcasting was only a youngster too. In those early days, the Cork Studios were in the old building in Sunday's Well that was formerly the women's prison, not the atmosphere most conducive to entertainment. I remember the, the early days they were broadcasting with the late Father O'Flynn doing Irish music and uh, Irish poetry and various little bits and pieces and then on to the days of James Stack, God rest his soul. Uh, one famous occasion we did Othello and I was sort of playing bits and pieces and general dog's body bits but at one stage I, I used to have to do the effects Now I'm very fond of doing effects, the only effect I used to create in those days. But um, in a subsequent critique of the play, Gabriel Fallon wrote, I loved the play from Cork, it was marvellous, this, that and the other, Edward Mulhare was fabulous, Bill O'Brien was wonderful and so on. The same Edward Mulhare, the one that plays the ghost and the ghost of Mrs Muir, he was playing Othello. No, he wasn't, he was playing Iago. No, I'm wrong, he was playing Othello, James Stack was playing Iago. But anyway, uh, Gabriel said, the alarm bell of Cyprus, he said, should have been ashamed of itself. Well, of course it should. I was doing it with my shoe with a hobnail boot and a piece, of, a piece of the old prison bars, the best I could get. In those young years in Cork, Joe Lynch had to turn his hand to many forms of the craft of entertainment. He calls it bits and pieces, but called it versatility. If astrology has any significance, then Joe's birth sign is very revealing. With the birthday of July the 16th, his zodiac sign is Cancer. And according to the books of astrology, cancer individuals are romantic, emotional, sensitive, full of imagination and distinctly tenacious. They can be easily carried away by the excitement of an occasion. They are inventive and original and they have very retentive memories. Quite a good specification for an actor, entertainer, one would have thought. Throughout World War II, Joe did the odd broadcast from Cork, as well as working with James Stack at the Opera House. Christy O'Donovan was in charge of props at the Opera House, and Christy has a good memory. The earliest thing I remember about Joe Lynch is when he came to James Stack in a play called Plunder. So a Stack production, and he played Darcy Tuckness. That was in 1945. May 1945. He also played in Puss in Boots, Panto by Dick Farr, was 1944. He played in The Bill of New York, 1945. He played in Gypsy Love, the Cock Operatic Society. That was 1945, October. when Joe Lynch was 22, he was asked to join the Radio Aaron Repertory Company in Dublin. 
The rep was just starting up with a pool of 24 actors altogether. As in all repertory companies, the acting assignments were varied. You could be playing the starring role in one play and just a murmur in a Czechoslovakian crowd in the next production. Your salary was still the same, between six and seven pounds a week in Joe's case. But as well, the Radiowaren rep had a slight difference to an ordinary stage company. Were you primarily a civil servant attached to the Department of Posts and Telegraphs, or were you an actor? I was very curious as to what I was, apart from being an actor who used to read scripts for children one week, climb telegraph poles the next, do running commentaries, <laughs> sometimes on the run, and uh, various other bits and pieces. Um, so I asked the minister uh, one time, he was the late James Everett, I said, Mr Everett, what am I? I got a very humorous letter back, which I'm glad to say I still keep, and I said, Achara, we have researched your status and we've come to the sad conclusion that you are, quote, a full-time, temporary, unestablished civil servant. And that's exactly what I was. Charles McCarthy now remembers working with Joe. There was, uh, in the war years in Cork, an extraordinary seedbed of theatrical work, indeed of theatrical creativity, I suppose. This was the School of Music in Morrison's Island, which had a little theatre, rather like a cut-down version of the kind you find in a rural hall. Jim Stack, who died recently, and uh, who, who dominated the theatre in Cork for nearly 30 years, began to develop there a, a drama class, and from it developed talent for the shows which he put on in the Opera House. It was, it was rather like a centre of magic uh, at a time when Cork was dark and rather dismal, and it was here that I first met Joe Lynch. Jim Stack, of course, was fascinated by him, as he was always fascinated by any real talent. But what I remember most about Joe now, at that time, was his extraordinary energy. Um, it was quite remarkable, really. He was, a, he was a scintillating, restless, talkative, ebullient personality. And his work in the theatre, I think, still has this character as well. Uh, he, was, he was a man who was capable of carrying a one-man show. He was a man who had an enormous capacity for comedy. He and I and Bill O'Brien from this, uh, this theatre movement in Cork came to Radio Wern in 1947. But, of course, Joe uh, reached very considerable heights since then. I think what's surprising about him is, uh, is his extraordinary capacity for stillness when he chooses to play uh, serious acting parts. It's so unlike his normal ebullience. He's a very fine actor, and while it's difficult to talk about a man in mid-career, at least it can be said that one can speculate with regard to the future. And although Joe has attained considerable heights up to now, perhaps we may see even more fascinating performances, particularly in serious drama in the years to come. Joe was about 22 or 23 when he made his first record for Martin Walton's company. Among the many discs he made over the next few years, there was one particular song that made him a household name everywhere in Ireland, within reach of a gramophone. Joe says that the man who wrote the song, Leo Maguire, didn't particularly like it himself, but Joe recorded it, passed it on to Rose Brennan, who recorded it, and she became singer of Great Britain that year on the strength of it. But here in Ireland, it will always be associated with one singer. 
The gypsy rover came over the hill Down through the valley so shady He whistled and sang till the green woods rang And he won the heart of a lady Adi-do, adi-do, And sang till the green woods rang, and he won the heart of a lady. She left her father's castle gate, she left her fair young lover, she left her servants and her state to follow the gypsy rover. Father saddled up his fastest steed. He ranged the valleys all over. He sought his daughter at great speed, and the whistling gypsy rover. Adi do, adi do, na de. Adi do, adi de. And sang till the green woods rang, and he won the heart of a lady. Her father came to a mansion fine down by the river, lady, and there was music and there was wine for the gypsy and his lady. Gypsy, my father dear, but lord of these lands all over. I'm going to stay till my dying day with my whistling gypsy rover. Adi do, adi do, da de. There's a much-used phrase today called job satisfaction, and uh, I never quite knew what they did. Every job satisfied me, but I'm old enough now to appreciate the difference between sort of working for a living and living to work or whatever. But uh, of all the sort of programs I did, and I was lucky to do quite a few notable ones, the one that gave me great satisfaction, in a way, was Ballad Maker Saturday Night, which was born one Christmas at a party, or rather after a party in Archie Sullivan's house, and Archie's dear mother, bless her, was alive then, a nice Monaghan woman. We had a marvellous time. And Mihalo Hay had a script in from Brian McMahon. Oh, yes, the same one. The great, the father of the great Kerry footballer. Brian would like that description of himself, I think. And um, it was about just a little ballad programme linked with a bit of linked script by a Shanachui. And, of course, we decided there and then Archie would be the Shanachui and Una Collins, God, lush, God rest her too. Lovely girl, Una. We, we, we all came in after the party, and we walked around the GPO and it was open. We went in and drafted the programme together, gave Martin Dempsey a shout, and the redoubtable Albert Healy, father of Noel. And um, we put the first programme together with the view that perhaps we might do another five. <laughs> five years would have been a better estimate. Now, 
After four years with the Radio Aaron rep, Joe became restless again. There was one further stepping stone. He joined the Abbey Theatre in 1951, when he was 26. Gabriel Fallon, that eminent man of the theatre, remembers that era well. You see, the first time I became conscious of even the name Joe Lynch was on an Abbey programme. And Joe was playing Christy Mann in The Playboy. And I've seen many Playboys, I need hardly tell you. But Joe was the first to give me the music of Sing. And I think I recorded that in a notice. But then a more extraordinary thing happened. Because in a John McCann play, a Dublin play, and I am a three-generation Dubliner, so I should be a fair judge, here was the same fellow, Joe Lynch, playing a marvellous Dublin part. Now, as you probably know, there are so many nuances of the Dublin accent. Yet Joe was giving a unique one. And there was no trace of Scock origin at all about him. Now, that was Joe to me in the theatre. Then I saw him in a Gaelic panto, in which he gave a marvellous impersonation of one of my favourite characters, Groucho Marx. And then I had an opportunity of analysing him when, under Ronnie Walsh, he did Living with Lynch, and I attended three of the actual performances. And then I noticed that what Joe had was this. Don't misunderstand me when I say he had an overplus of personality. Uh, as a person, it's very hard to say. He always left me with the impression, uh, you know, he, he reminded me of champagne. There was always something bubbling inside him. And, 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 and uh, there was always the tendency to come out. And indeed, I was only a critic at the time, the lowest form of uh, humanity. And uh, I remember them telling me that Joe in the Abbey, that uh, when he was there, the Abbey Queens it was, that, um, oh, he was full of himself and he was always doing this and he was always doing that. And of course, a good deal of that, I think, was due to jealousy on their part. 
but he is a most ebullient character. And uh, the scriptwriter who will see that, noted, and make good use of it, will certainly make Joe a star. Joe was to remain with the Abbey Theatre for five years altogether, but in the meantime, since his Sundays were free, he became involved in another enterprise. Living with Lynch. So Joe Lynch was back with Radio Aaron again, but only as a visitor at Sunday lunchtime with a repeat on Thursday night. Living with Lynch was originally scheduled for just a few weeks, but it ran for four years. During that time, a very large audience became familiar with the scatty voice of Pam Duncan, the dapper tones of Ronnie Walsh and the lugubrious Charlie Byrne. But it wasn't popular with everyone. An eminent cleric took exception to one of the jokes. A notable English music hall singer took exception and legal advice about his name being twisted into a joke. And during a Fianna Foyle or Desh, the programme was cited as being only fit for morons. Twenty years later, the script may show its age, but there's no denying the enthusiasm of the players. The real story behind the cruise of the Irish rover has never before been published. And you may ask yourself, why was this? Why was this? Why was this? Why was this? <laughs> and I'll tell you why it has never been published before, because it's downright uninteresting, that's why. For instance, here's Joe Lynch. Thank you, sir. Look to your timing. Your courtesy stamps you as a gentleman, as do your clothes. When you're leaving to Herbal, Mr. Lynch, we'll file a 21-gun salute. Will you miss me? Not if we can get a careful aim with a 21-gun salute. <laughs> However, if you do get to New York, please give this letter to the mayor. Show me. With the compliments of the mayor of Skib Skibbereen. With two S's in it. I often wonder what you mayors are always sending messages to one another about. But it'd be too much to ask, you know, what this note says, Well, it? no, it merely says, pass the fool on. Ah, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, be that as it may, I have to hoist anchor now. Mr. Mayor. Yes? Would you mind untying the rope from the bollard? And don't let go till I tell you now. Don't let go till I tell you. Goodbye, all. So long, Mr. Lynch. <laughs> if you get to America live, send us a postcard. <laughs> Don't worry, Kitty the Hare. <laughs> I'll send you a postcard whether I get there alive or not. The Irish are over. Well, here I am, 40 miles from land. I'm two feet from water. You know, you know, it's a great feeling to be alone. A great feeling to be alone, especially when there's nobody with you. <laughs> No sound to disturb the vast silence except the lonely cry of the wild gooses. Uh, excuse me. Where the while we'll take a gander at this wild goose. <laughs> oh, it's the mayor. What are you doing aboard me ship? I say, can I let go of the rope now? No, no, wait a minute now. Wait, cut, pull up there, you politician. You Don't act the innocent at me. You deliberately stored away. I know what your game is. You're doing a bunk to America. You might as well admit it. Come I'm on. only holding onto the rope. Can uh, I let go? Likely story now. It's always like I say. Give a man enough rope. And he'll skip. Aye, to skip a read, but listen to me. Can I let go of the rope? You'll have to work your passage, that's all now, Mr. Mayor or no mayor. So you can take off them stupid-looking garments you're wearing and leave the chain back where you got. No, there's no need to get all het up now. I'll be happy to work on board your yacht. This is not a yacht, sir. It is a bark. If you were a sea dog, you'd recognise me bark. 
I presume now I'll get paid for working on your whatever you call it. Me bark. <laughs> the standard wage is ten bob a day. That's if the weather stays fine, of course. And what do I get if it rains? Wet. <laughs> now you'll be lucky if you get any food at all. I only bring enough for myself. Anyway, they always say they do, they say two heads are better than one. It was a bit conspicuous, of course, but <laughs> it's a good job you didn't bring along anyone else. I know my hair is going grey. <laughs> hey, Yul Brynner, come here. <laughs> Shake your hair out of your eyes, man. What are you doing aboard my ship? What, what have you got to say for yourself? What about the walking man? <laughs> One second. Now, every week you come in here asking the same stupid question. You know something? I'm convinced your working man is only a theory. Why a theory? Because a theory, it seldom works. Well, you know... <laughs> you know, you're right there. I've been out of work now for 30 years, and I'm only 28. <laughs> hey, Charlie, come here. I know, I know I'm leaving myself wide open and all that, but how could you be out of work for 30 years if you're only 28? Over time. <laughs> Point. What are you doing on my ship? I'm going to Canada. You're emigrating, are you? You're deserting Catalina Hulacan and the hour of her need. You're emigrating, are you? Well, no, no, no. Not exactly. You see, I'm being deported. Oh, welcome aboard, yes. It's the mother's doing. The mother? Yes. Uh, she found I was mitching from a correspondence school. <laughs> Charlie, at the risk of being classed mentally as a politician, well, I ask you something. How is it possible to mitch from correspondence school? Well, I'll tell you, I sent in empty envelopes. <laughs> well, Charlie, you can't lick them. <laughs> Why'd you pick my ship to stow away on, huh? Well, I'm not stowing away. I'm on board as a guest of honour. Who's honour? I am. Jeepers. <laughs> What's this, a woman? I'm here to look after the seven million bags of the best Sligo rags. Seven million bags of the best... What? What are you talking about? What's Sligo rags? Well, you see, we had to fill up this side of the hole with these bales of rags. Why? To balance the four million bundles of clover. <laughs> four million bundles of clover. We had to bring the clover along. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why did you have to fill up my ship with four million bundles of clover? To keep down the smell. Ah, yes, of course, the smell. What smell? <laughs> the six million bales of nanny goat's tail. <laughs> well, they're not in their nanny. Of course, you just had to bring along the six million nanny goods. Tails, I know you just had to. Well, they wouldn't come without them. Who wouldn't? That's six million nanny goats of Gabalonia. <laughs> it was too much for me. Too much. So I went to bed to sleep it off. I left a message for the others to call me early in the morning. Hey, early, early. Get up, early. Come quick, come quick. There's a calamity. I saw her last night. Ha! I got up out of my warm bunk. And put on me clothes. Now, there's a funny thing I'm addicted to. Wearing clothes. <laughs> Do you know something? I seldom wear anything else. Mr. Lynch. Yes, yes, what is it? Man over man, 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 Who is it? Who is it? Me. <laughs> help, help, I can't swim. I say I can't swim. You see that? Always thinking of yourself once. <laughs> I can't swim. I can't swim. I can't play tennis and you don't hear me roaring and shouting about it. <laughs> Let him, let, let him go, Charlie. Let him go. It will mean more rations for the rest of us. You pushed them. 
I saw you. You deliberately drowned that man. Nonsense, Charlie. No, don't say things like that. Charlie, I just leaned against him a little bit. And after that, he was on his own. And I suppose you couldn't have sticking that knife in him? A coincidence, Charlie, coincidence. And kicking him on the head when he came up for air? No, no, Charlie. Charlie, accidents will happen. Will hello, hello. You two are up very early. Where's our friend the Moor? He's late. Dead late. <laughs> As a matter of fact, he has an acute attack of mal de Moor. <laughs> That means, oh, sorry, that means. Yeah, Quick, there's a leak in the hole. I don't give a tinker's course if there's parsnips on the poop deck. I'm not hungry. It's serious. The ship is all flooded. The ghosts will be all drowned. Not them. They're skedaddle in the lifeboats. The swine. No, the swine are still here. I'm worried. I don't think the ship will stand up these heavy seas. We're safe enough. When you see the rats leaving the ship, that's the time to start worrying. They're still with us, aren't they? Yeah, but they're all wearing life belts. <laughs> In 1956, Joe left the Abbey Theatre. Living with Lynch still had another two years to go. Backed by the enormous popular success earned by his weekly radio show, Joe made personal appearances all over the country. On the dance hall circuit, it was a different town every night and three or four songs in every performance. As well as the well-known ballads with which he was always associated, now there was a new type of song. Down in Mexico at each high noon, siesta is the thing. Oh, you can find them sleeping out in the shade while the birds so softly sing. But from a radio, there comes a U.S. show, and the disc jockeys playing the blues. Before they know what's happened, they're up and clapping to the tune of the blues suede shoes. to the sky Inside the matador has got his sword in hand A bull is fixing to die But from a radio there comes a frantic sound And the sword drops from his hand The bull begins to pace around In the dust to the beat of that rock and roll band Oh, one, two, and then rock Expecting to see the scenes Of all the quiet places And the quiet faces That they read of in magazines But then they're amazed When they find this craze Is not in the U.S. alone They used to dance neath the stars To those Spanish guitars But they do it now to saxophone Oh, one, two, and then rock
By now, Joe Lynch was being attracted more and more often to engagements across the water, theatre, television, cabaret and variety shows. It was still bits and pieces, but now on a much larger scale. Artistically, he still roves between serious drama and light comedy. He has sung Irish ballads at the Albert Hall and appeared with Sir Bernard Miles at the famous Mermaid Theatre. Eventually, the commuting became too tiresome, as Joe found more and more assignments demanding his time in Britain. Now his family are settled there with him. His wife, Mary, Linda, who is now 20, Emmy, 16, and Mark, just topping 10. Weybridge in Surrey is their home from home. He says himself that he's keeping fit and playing a little golf. Certainly he can now afford to take it more gently, with success won in two countries. Or is he just getting his breath for phase two? Because when I'm paddling, paddling home Yeah, when I'm paddling, paddling home First she swings to the left, then she drifts to the shore I hug her and kiss her and paddle some more Cause when I'm paddling, paddling home Until I find a spot where we're alone Oh, she never says no, I just kiss her and go Paddling, Madeline, sweet, sweet Madeline Paddling, Madeline, home gentlemen after a little initial trouble with me outboard motor but I, ah paddling Madeline brings you back ma'am doesn't it the days of leisure and innocence and downright laziness <laughs> in my day the girl used to do the paddling do you know there was a fellow in Cork there was a fellow in Cork he was so lazy he was lying in the middle of the grand parade on a patch of grass there in the center one day see by the monument and he yanked him up and he said say bud where's the grand parade and the guy never moved a muscle he was like Gene Lambert you know Eugene the dummy he was like Eugene, he went, here. Not a muscle move, just here. And the young says, boy, I'm impressed with your laziness. I'll tell you something, you do something lazier than that, I'll give you five dollars. And the guy says, put it into me pocket. <laughs> mind you, mind you, mind you, they're not, they're not prone to work in Kerry either. I was in Kerry, myself and Peggy Dell, she'll tell you. We were down in Kerry last February, sitting in the kitchen of a house, nice people. Now they only had one son, unmarried, 75. <laughs> oh, no, no, Jackie, nice fella. Now, Jackie, a terrible nice lad. And the mammy and the daddy, they dote on him. He's their only chick, you see. God help us all. They're mad about him. He got pneumonia a couple of years ago, and he was lying in the bed groaning and moaning, and the doctor came and gave him the M&B tablets, you know, and he was going, <gasps> did you ever have pneumonia, ma'am? It's bad for you, you know? <laughs> and he wasn't, but he wasn't, he wasn't in any danger, but the poor people didn't know that, and they were each side of their bed, mammy and daddy with the rosary beads out, glory to the Nahidrest and Boxton split nave, and he let a terrible big groan out of him. Oh, daddy, daddy, says the mother, I told you many a time we'd never rear him. <laughs> what? 
whilst we were in, you see, Peggy and myself, oh, Peggy will tell you this, and we're sitting there having a cup of tea, and the mammy turns around to Jackie and the beloved, and she said, Jackie and she's here, will you go on out in the yard and see if it's raining? And he went, <whistles> just like that, I thought that was very peculiar. So the mother thought it was peculiar too. She said, what did you whistle for, Dad? I asked you to go out in the yard, see if it was raining, and you let a whistle out of you. He said, I'll call the greyhound, he said, and feel his coat. <laughs> But the worst, can you imagine the worst possible situation? A Corkman and a Kerry man, the first two Irish astronauts in space. You know, shot off from Tullamore or somewhere or Clifton into the old rocket, you know, light the litmus paper and get the turf dust going, mix with the potching. They're going to the sun by nighttime. And off they go. And they're, they're in space, you see, for about three months, inside in this tiny little capsule, you know. And, and, and it is no fun. You know, you're laughing, Mama, or you can you see my point, don't you? And they got a little bit annoyed with each other. The Cork fella said something about Kerry football, and, and that was it, you know. And they weren't talking for about three weeks. They're not talking to each other at all. So the Kerry fella thought to himself, now I'm the Kerry man here, and I'm the fellow with the brains, and I'll solve this problem. He said, I know if I tell you now. I'll go on outside the oak now, and I'll tie myself on with a little rope, and I'll cavort in space for an hour or two, and he'll be so lonely in here, this cock fella, because they're, they're a warrant to talk, you know, the cockmen. He'll be so lonely in here, he'll be glad when I come back and all will be forgotten. So out he went, made a signal to the other fella, opened the hatch and went out. I know the way they have the little rope onto the middle, you know. And, and, and you know, they're like the umbilical cord in the baby. If you cut it, it goes, you know. <laughs> anyway, he, they're outside, you see, and, and he's floating around, and he got fierce lonely himself. Well, he said, if I'm lonely out here, your man must be mad with the loneliness inside in the small little capsule. So he'd be glad to see him, and he comes back, and he bangs on the side, and he goes, knock, knock, not a sound. He bangs a bit louder, knock, knock, and the voice inside said, yes, who is it? <laughs> mind you, mind you, they, they, they do laugh in the north of Ireland still. God love them, and I hope you listen tonight, lads. But I love the story of the northern man. He came down, he was telling a friend of mine, he said, I tell you, he said, I, I was down from Belfast, I was in Dublin in business, and on my way back, he said, going through Dundalk, I felt very poorly. Ach, I felt real bad, didn't feel good at all. So I went into a pub, he went into a pub, and the barman came down, he says, can, you don't look well, sir, he says, can I help you? I said, well, give me something to cheer me up, uh, you know, to get me home. Give me a vodka, he said, that didn't do you any good. Whiskey, gin, brandy, no good. He says, I'll tell you what, sir, he says, I'll give you the parish priest special. So he mixed up this thing that come out all foaming and lovely. It looked nice with a froth on the top. Drink that up, he says. And I drank it up, it was lovely. And I, sta I, st I started to feel it doing me good, you know. And I had another one, and I had three. And I went on up home to Belfast on Saturday night. And sure enough, next morning, I slept like a baby. I got up the next morning, and I took all the family out to the Sunday morning. We all went to first mass. And we come back having our breakfast, and then the trouble started. And my friend said, what trouble? He says, you see, we're Presbyterians. <laughs> But somebody, somebody mentioned to me the other day, you know, there's great clerical humour in Ireland. And he said, what's the definition of clerical humour? And I said, Ian Paisley. A <laughs> 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 oh, people of Northern Ireland! <laughs> Did you ever... All the priests now, all the real priests are wearing little small collars, and he has a great big white one. And he reminds me of a donkey looking over a whitewash wall. A <laughs> oh, people of North! He came down to Dublin, you know, some time ago to get a suit of clothes. He came by night. <laughs> He's no bloody fool. He came down to a little tailor and rat mines this in. He slipped in the back way. He says, I have come down here, he says, Mike, for you to make a suit for me. 
Oh, she answers, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, how many yards you got there? Three and a half yards? To be lined with hard and silk? Ah. Oh, I said, that'll be all right. I'll get you a suit out of that, he says. I'll get you a coat, a waistcoat, and two pairs of pants. And I think I'll have a little left over, he says, to give you a little shorty coat for the car. Incredible, says Maisley. Incredible, unbelievable. My tailor in the north of Ireland told me he'd be very lucky if he got a coat and jacket out of it and, and just, a, just a single pair of pants. But you get a, a coat, a waistcoat, two pairs of pants and a shorty for the car. How do you do that? Oh, well, he said, Ian, that's with you, you see, not with me. Up in the north of Ireland, you see, you're a big man, but down here... <laughs> <laughs> You know, the things that can happen. Cast your minds back, especially you older ladies like myself. Back to the days when men were men. Women weren't wanted. <laughs> and a pansy was just a flower. <laughs> a little song and there's a lovely chorus and it's called The Old Rustic What's It By The Other Thing. Now you got it, that's it. I'm thinking tonight of the old rustic bridge that bends o'er the murmuring stream. Twas then, Maggie dear, with our hearts full of cheer, we strayed neath the moon's gentle beam. Twas there I first met you the light in your eye awoke in my heart a sweet thrill though now far away still my thoughts fondly stray to the old rustic bridge by the mill beneath it the stream Gently ripple around it, the birds love to sing. Though now far away, still my thoughts fondly stray And now, the man himself. Joe Lynch, with a message for those of you who have survived 50 years of radio. Well, as they say, 50 years of Irish broadcasting, the man said long ago, the first 50 years of the hardest row. I think that fellow knew what he was talking about because I found the first 50 years the hardest. As a matter of fact, I predate the station by, well, about six months myself. But, um, you know, all this sounds like an obit. I'm sorry, lads, but it does, you know, rather sound like an obituary notice. Because I remember my wife said, what's all this about doing your sort of little achievements on Radio Air? And she said, you're not even dead yet. And for my wife, that's a great compliment, you know. It's nice when they say things like that about you. But um, having attained 50, I suppose the station must feel somewhat like myself. 50 is a funny age, you know. I did sit down one day. I was waiting to do a commercial in an office in Soho in London, that sinful square mile. And uh, they left me there while they were rigging up a studio or something, or probably cooking up the script or trying to get a backer. And I had a little piece of paper in my pocket and I jotted down what it's like to attain 50 years of age. And it came out something like this, on reaching 50. Golden is stubble, but nonetheless, to sear. Purple Hills America, 
newly minted cobwebs silver sprinkled that trace the calendar and say you've had the least end of yet another year. Don't worry, lad, it'll soon be Christmas. Sadly now a commercial thing. And give or take some ice and snow, a fog or two, black frost, and then before you know it, spring. A lengthening shadow casts upon your confidence, a silken tug at your mortality. You look around the golden autumn scene that even in its sadness hides the old reality. And when your heart should tremble with a fear, you suddenly remember, God, the apples tasted good this year. <laughs> 